0: time on still waters this is NB 506812 narrow casting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways 3rd of January Sunday. I went out into the soundless sphere of night as the new year was dawning and said This is me and I am here You seem so big and dark and unknown but I have known your brothers and sisters and have learnt to revel in the days of their sunshine and find their special beauties under skies of steel and water Today is filled with clinging fog that chills the marrow and makes the bones ache. But your sons will soon come, and larks will sweep the skies again. Welcome. This is Narrowboat Erica, coming to you from under a sky filled with stars and frost. Thanks for joining me, and welcome aboard. Earlier tonight is Penny and I walked up the hill to meet Donna as she came back from work. The air was so still, and for the first time for many days the fog has lifted, and the stars shone brightly. Looking down at the boats, all lit up as they nestled below us, the air was sweet with that smell of wood smoke, and hazy blowing trails plumed from the chimney tops ghosting vertically into the air for about six to seven feet before flattening as it's carried on the now softer winds, with the same effect that you get when you pour milk into a stream. Well, it's been really good over this past week to catch up with so many of you and hear your news don't forget that you can always drop me a line or contact me either by email at nighttimeonstillwaters at com, or just by dropping a line or a comment on one of the social media platforms, the Facebook page or the Instagram or Twitter, and the links to them are all below. Please also don't forget just to click like if you can on the podcast um, or click on subscribe, and that way you'll be notified when the next episodes are uploaded and ready for you to listen to. You might remember a couple of episodes back that Arlene Kettering from Seattle in America contacted us and told us of some of her experiences when she and her husband came over to hire a narrowboat and do the Four Counties Ring. And She's got back in contact and sent me some lovely photographs of taken at the little beach house that she and her husband are renovating. Uh, That's located on the wetlands of California. And there's an amazing array of birds and animals there. And I have to say that I really love those little raccoons. And I suspect that they're a real pain uh, to have to, to deal with, but they are really lovely. Which reminds me that Arlene contacted me a little earlier on and asked me if I was going to do anything on ghosts, particularly ghosts associated with the canal systems. Uh, and she's got a really good point because this time of year is absolutely perfect for just sort of hunkering down somewhere warm and cosy and listening to a good ghost story. And again, she's absolutely right. There are a number of ghosts and ghost stories that are associated with the canals, particularly tunnels, which perhaps unsurprisingly, because unfortunately a number of navvies were killed in their excavations, they're incredibly dangerous things to build. And also actually just sailing through a tunnel is quite a sort of spooky activity. It's dark it's quite claustrophobic, it's echoey and damp, and water is constantly dripping and playing and dazzling and flashing in the headlamp of your boat and any other lights that may be on. And so it's quite natural that your mind might turn to the supernatural and to the uh, scarier things. So yes, I Am and I actually funnily enough had planned to do something on ghosts and ghosts, this tradition of ghost stories and the canal systems. And I need to do a little bit more research. I know of a couple of stories, but I want to do a little bit more research on that and there will be either for the remaining time of this winter or uh in the the, the when winter returns. At the end of the year, I'll certainly do a an episode looking at ghosts. Another regular Jean Mann also sent me a photograph and while we were experiencing here the icy fog and sub zero temperatures, Jean sent me a picture of the fields of Norfolk which were frost free and clear. And thank you for that. Again, it's a lovely have pictures of those wide prairie-type skies and landscapes that I mentioned when um, talking about Pamela uh, last episode. And also, apologies and a really belated thank you to Rona House, who is always um, dropping in on the Facebook page and wrote a lovely review. And thank you for that. I really appreciate it. And sorry, I haven't replied earlier. It's just that it came up on my timeline, but then I couldn't find it and I didn't know where it was posted. I couldn't find where it's posted. I'm still having a little bit of difficulty in trying to work out how Facebook pages work because they work in a very different way to your normal Facebook page. So thank you, Rona. I really do appreciate that. And another person that actually a number of listeners might be really interested in, and that's Andrew Plummer. Andrew's a photographer who takes some really wonderful photographs, um, beautiful um, animal studies, wildlife studies, um, but also has an interest in, obviously, even canals, but also in steam trains. And if you like steam trains, there are some beautiful pictures that he has posted on his Instagram account. And that's Andrew P. Photo. And there's a particularly wonderful photograph of two steam locomotives, 76084, a standard class four and 90775, the Royal Norfolk regiment, uh, taken, I think at night. I mean, it certainly looks like it's at night. Absolutely majestic and it's uh, taken at waybourne which adds an extra sort of layer of interest for me because waybourne station is where dad in in not so much in the winter but in spring summer and autumn always has his cheese sandwich on waybourne station on a sunday lunchtime and watches the trains go by and uh, chats to the uh, the volunteers there so thank you andrew and If you are interested in in steam trains or if you're interested in wildlife photography, then please have a look at his Instagram page. As usual, I'm here sitting at my little desk in the study in the stern of Erica. But tonight as the temperatures once more dip quite a fair bit below zero, It feels particularly cosy and warm and snug. The small circle of light coming from my desk lamp above me enfolds me in its warmth. And at my feet lies Penny. She sighs and stretches. And over my shoulder in the corner is the small boatman's stove that's pumping out a really warm, welcoming and embracing heat. The coals smolder scarlet and orange, but through the smoke-dimmed glass they give off this beautifully deep, rich, cherry-red glow. And on top of the stove is also a cherry-red coffee pot and that provides the supplementary source for our hot water. Over to my right are the bookshelves that contain our treasured friends' books that. We cannot bear to part with, and that have somehow become welded into our lives. It's an eclectic selection, and that's exactly what it should be. Outside the porthole, the stars pivot on their axes, cascading constellations upon our seasons. And for the last week or so, the surface of the water glitters and scratched and scarted ice, softened by daylight. Often to a mush that cannot hold a duck, but upon which wagtails can still safely strut. And each night it's further hardened under its rimy crust, under the anvil of the night and the icy fire of the winter stars. It's a sleepy warmth here in the boat, if you know what I mean. Sharpened by owl cry. On the quack and chuckle of ducks in their sleep. And penny moves, settles down, and the coal shifts in their grate. And as outside the world freezes, we're here, cocooned in a soft world of warmth and gentle light. For most of the week, we've been battered by a really cruel northeasterly wind, a wind that's been sculpted by Arctic oceans and the howls of icebergs and the claws of polar bears. And the temperatures have dipped to minus five and minus six. And during the day, which is often just swaddled in this damp, clammy, freezing fog, temperatures have not really lifted above minus 1.5. The swans have kept their patch of water clear of ice and seem to spend a lot of time just enjoying dipping their head under the waters that are inky dark and grazing the frost-glazed grass. The ducks have been more boisterous and landing and aquaplaning on the ice sheets and slush, slipping and skidding with squawks and quacks. And the uh, little lone coot, ducking and diving on its impossible feet, has also been in their midst as usual as we throw out the uh, duck food and swan food to them. The winter has always posed special challenges to people living, and particularly working, the canal systems. And like most of our ancestors, winter was a time to be dreaded and feared. And we can pick this up in contemporary writings. James Hollingshead, in the late 1850s, with a companion, travelled along the Grand Junction in a fast narrowboat, Referred to as a flyboat. And these are working boats that work day and night. They had a crew of four people, two, often two men, two pairs of men. So as one pair slept, the other pair worked. And so they could keep on moving without ever stopping. And they traveled up the canal system in this flyboat called the Stalport. And it's a fascinating piece of Victorian reportage, part entertainment, part social comment, offering an absolutely fascinating glimpse into canal life. It was published in 1858 in Charles Dickens's magazine Household Worlds, and then later as part of the collected volume of his writings in Out and About. And that's where my copy comes from. Admitting that he has a tendency to depreciate people and people's lives who he knows very little about, he seems to have set himself the task of going throughout Britain and experiencing and encountering the lives of people quite often overlooked by the rest of the British society, but certainly by the tourists. And he describes in his article how he starts off with thick boots and a thick stick, luggage strapped upon my back and a very broad brimmed hat. And they came back with wonderful stories of picturesque spots lying neglected, almost under the very shadow of St. Paul's Cathedral, and fabulous accounts of people and manners existing within a pistol shot of Primrose Hill, or three hours' walk from Hyde Park Corner. He goes on to say, I have associated with gypsies. To be grievously disappointed at finding them nothing like the bright and cheerful beings represented in the pages of story-books and in the pictures of the music-sellers, but very dirty, wretched, miserable tramps whose real way of life I found to be very unromantic and disagreeable, especially when the damp mists of later autumn settled down upon the fields and woods, and they trod upon nothing better than the sere and yellow leaf. I have lived amongst railway navigators, in a hut upon wheels, to be astonished at the wild and almost childlike simplicity of their nature, and the rude sense of order, justice and honesty that existed in their strong bodies and feeble and uncultivated minds. Finally, as I'm about to narrate, having nearly exhausted the land of my birth, I lately took to my natural enemy the water, but In its placidest condition, and, scorning to leave the country in which I was born and in which I hoped to die, I glided for days and nights upon the silent byways of our inland canals, giving myself up without reserve to the unrestrained companionship of bargemen, accommodating my vast bulk to the confined space afforded by the crowded cabin of a Grand Junction Canal Company's flyboat. I't come back to this article in later episodes, because he makes some several very interesting observations. but the point I want to make is that although he doesn't specify when he started his journey or when this journey took place, it seems to have been round about autumn time, and he writes this rather telling little observation. The boatman." Even now we're beginning to speculate upon the probable mildness or severity of the approaching winter. A dreaded season when canal life becomes nothing but days and nights of exposure to drifting sleet, keen winds and heavy snow or cold, soaking rains. I had planned to devote this episode to answer a number of Nancy's questions about the physical aspects of the canals and the canal systems. But this sharp spell of cold that we've had has rather changed the plans because a number of listeners and friends have contacted us. Some of them are a little bit concerned about how we're keeping warm, how we are faring and this perception that if we're living on the canal, then we're going to be cold and it's going to be a sort of almost a fight for survival. But perhaps for us, the biggest impact that cold weather has is not so much on the cold itself, but it's upon the water supply. Where taps tend to be located, they can freeze quite easily. And our water supply was frozen for a number of days. Fortunately, it defrosted enough that earlier on I could refill our tank and there's nothing like the feeling that you get from having a full water tank again, just as when you're kind of like getting a little bit worried that you were going to be running out. But again, one of the things about the canal community is that it's very much a can do attitude and a can do mentality. And so if there is a problem, there's lots of people that will lock and offer some of advice and support. And this is the problem. Okay. How can we fix it? And that really is really, I think, probably the greatest strength of living amongst other boaters at this period. I suppose the other really kind of big impact uh, cold weather has is actually trying to convince Penny that she actually does need to leave this nice warm boat to go out into the cold, to have some exercise and to go to the toilet. A couple of listeners to the weather log that I always finish each episode with have commented on the warmth of the inside temperature, the the warmth of the inside of the cabin. And in actual fact, we've been warmer here on Erica this winter than we would have been if we had been in a house. And although I, I do also have to say that I am aware that some boaters recently have been struggling with the cold and so I don't want to paint too much of an idealistic picture, but this is our experience. A narrow boat is essentially a steel box sitting in water in often quite exposed locations. So therefore, heating is essential. On Erica, we have a very robust central heating system, but because we also prefer a fail-safe, belt and braces approach, we also have two multi multi-fuel stoves, the main one in the living space at the front of the boat or in the bow and the smaller one here in the stern or uh, in the study. To some extent, having two stoves <laughs> and a central heating system is a bit of overkill. But the study stove really is not used all the time. It's just used when the temperatures really do begin to plummet. And we'll have to say that actually it's more than proved its value during this cold snap. When we were planning to live on a boat, heating was for me the highest priority and that it was something that we needed to really nail and nail down right at the beginning. And it goes back to the priorities of survival. Heating has got to always be the first thing you think of. You must be able to keep warm and to be protected from the elements. And that's why fuel poverty is such a pernicious and serious issue and problem. Heating is not a luxury. Heating is not something that you think of when all the other bills are paid. It should be at right at the top of your list of priorities. As long as you have the means of heating, heating a boat is actually relatively easy because heating a 60 foot by 7 foot by roughly 6.5 foot box is far easier and economical than trying to heat a two or three bedroomed house. And I know that being close to water, even being on water, would suggest that everything is chilly and cold and damp, but actually the water itself acts as an insulator. So although it can be chilly or make things feel a bit chillier in spring and autumn, in those really cold snaps, actually the water is holding the temperature and, and is keeping us at an even at an even temperature. And that really sort of touches another question that I was asked by an old, my old friend Alistair, Alistair Anderson, who said, do we have a problem with damp? And for example, when we get up in the mornings, are all our pieces of paper all sort of curled with damp? No, we don't. It's very dry, but again, because we heat the boat and that heat keeps everything nice and dry. And in fact, again, we are much drier here than we were in the house where we did lose some books and some clothes because of damp. One thing that you do need to bear in mind is that insulation is not as good as in some houses. And so heat retention can be a bit of a problem. And that's when you can get a cold boat and a damp boat. We're fortunate with the Erica, in as much as she rather unusually has two forms of insulation, spray foam and rock wool. We hadn't realised this. We We knew that from the details we were given when we bought her that she had spray foam insulation. But when... Neil, who was fitting out the study for us, you also came across some rock wall as well. So that does help to keep the heat in. But nevertheless, if the stoves went out and we did not use the central heating, then the boat would become cold pretty quickly. So again, it's all about thinking ahead. It's all about planning. And again, it's about prioritising what your needs are. But then again, that is exactly why we chose this form of life. We made a conscious decision that we wanted to live closer to the elements, to leave behind those things that disconnected us from the landscape and the lives among which we lived, those unnoticed and assumed conveniences that certainly for me felt as if they were anesthetizing me from the cycles and flows of the world around me, of the seasons and of the elements that created this sort of dislocated existence in which I certainly felt that I was being trapped in. This sort of unreal bubble that was unwittingly destroying the very environment that I kind of wanted to be part of. I guess what I'm trying to say is that living here on a boat in the winter and the things that it necessitates us to do are not hardships for us. They are what we want. They, it's the life that we have chosen and it's the life that we are relishing. As an instance of this connection and closeness to the elements, a couple of days ago, I woke to find the inside of the window just above my head where I sleep covered in ice. I like to sleep tucked under the gunnels. The gunnels are the, is the bit where the cabin joins the hull. And the hull is a little bit wider than the cabin. And that means that On the outside of the boat, you got a very—if you're careful—you got a small sort of walkway that you can walk down each side of the boat, and it's really nice. It feels really sort of cosy, kind of sleep in there, particularly when it rains and you can hear the rain sort of battering on the outside. And as I say, the other morning, I woke to be really surprised to find a thick rime of ice clinging and sagging to the interior of the window and that's just about six inches if that above my head and although the cabin was still really cozy and warm and I was certainly very cozy in bed under the under the duvet and it reminded me of my childhood running my fingers over the frost ferns that patterned the inside of my bedroom window when I was young And I quickly learned that if I tried to lick it, it would tear at my tongue in bursts of burning fire. But I can still remember that taste on my tongue though. And I really love and enjoy the fact that the elements are so, so close to us. I'll finish with a comment made by another boater Drew Marland, who is uh, an illustrator, artist, poet, lives on EVE on the Kennet and Navan. Her paintings and pictures are absolutely wonderful. Um, And I'll put a link to her Etsy website for you to have a look at them. And she also, on her Facebook page, every morning, she posts an update, which really sort of acts as like a little journal That contains observations of her life and of her night and the morning, what the morning's like, what the dawn's like, birds she's heard. And quite often it's full of wry humor and wonderful turns of phrase. And a couple of days ago, she posted this as part of her Facebook post. I can see why people say it must be cold in the winter when they see a boat out in the frozen wastes. But generally, it's because they are cold. We, hopefully, are toasty and warm down below like floating hobbits. So, like floating hobbits, let's stoke the fire one more time and I wish you all a very, very good night. Good night. Outside temperature minus 2.9 degrees Inside temperature 26 degrees. Humidity 98%. Dew point -3.1 degrees. Wind direction southwest. Wind strength 5 miles per hour. Barometric pressure rising slowly. Precipitation, nil. Moon phase, 13.8%, waning crescent. Day length, eight hours, three minutes. Sunset, 1615. Skycasting, 8, 11.